0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, we'll go ahead and turn uh, over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we get to an interesting passage tonight. So let me just read, starting at verse 26, which we covered last week. Paul says, uh, literally, just what then, New American Standard, what is the outcome then? Brethren, when you assemble, gather together, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn and one must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but are subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper, literal, shameful, disgraceful, for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come only to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commands. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly, decently, and in an orderly manner. So we come tonight to um, uh, the close of this chapter. And of course, this chapter is uh, just a one of those fascinating ones because it deals with these exotic things like tongues and prophecy. And uh, what we're going to do is as we finish the chapter, then we'll loop back around and we'll pick up the subjects of, of tongues and prophecy because we really didn't talk, as, as we said, as we went through the exposition about the nature of b- both of those gifts and whether those gifts continue. So we will we'll, we'll get to that lord willing maybe next week but tonight we come to a passage that is incredibly challenging and it's in challenging it's challenging for a number of reasons we'll talk about why um, but first just by way of reminder so last week we saw guidelines for when the church gathers right and of course we we made a big deal about the fact that the church needs to assemble in order to be the assembly right and so Paul says there's individual contributions that people bring, uh gifts that they bring, um uh, abilities that they bring that actually for the edification of the body. And then Paul gives this this general principle and that is let all things be done for edification. Now you have to remember that this is this is a direct uh correction to the Corinthians who would gather together and things would be rather chaotic and people would, uh, we would just, we would say something like they just were showboats, right? They're just putting on display their own gifts for the sake of, of bringing attention to themselves. And Paul says, everything needs to be done for edification. The body gathers for the purpose of edification. One's contribution should be for the purpose of edification. And so edification, of course, happens, and this has been Paul's point all along, when instruction, intelligible instruction, occurs. Paul then gives rules for tongues and prophecy. Tongues in verses 27 and 28. Um, In all likelihood, these rules, right, uh, two, three at the most, must be interpreted, everybody in turn. Uh, One, he's trying to curb the chaos, right? two he's trying to prevent the gift of tongues from monopolizing the service all right um and then prophecy and then he he says you know two or three prophets they're to take turns but if some if one of the prophets is seated and uh, as it were a, a fresh revelation comes the one who's presently prophesying is to be seated while the other one gets stands up and gives uh, the message from the Lord, and then Paul makes this this really interesting comment. He says, "The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets okay. now that 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 means at, at least this that it 's not the gift that controls the prophet it 's the prophet who 's to control the gift, okay. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, no prophet could make the claim that, um, you know, you need to sit down because I have a, a revelation right now and the guy says, uh, well, I can't sit down. I'm on a roll or something, right? And so the whole idea is, is that the one who has the gift is also indwelt by the spirit and the fruit of the spirit is self-control right now, there could be um another implication, and that is that the spirits of the prophets actually are subject to the to the prophets as as, as a group, all right in other words, um they were sort of um self um uh, regulating among themselves, all right and so when Paul then gives that final admonition there. Then we notice at verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, okay? And so here's the principle. Here's why it's not just chaos. Here's why you don't have people talking over each other. Here's why you take turns. Here's why intelligibility is important, uh, is because God is not a God of it's a, it's a great word in, in the Greek text, and the idea is not just uh, confusion, but you could probably even push it to have the idea of anarchy. God's not a God of anarchy. He's not a God of chaos. He's not a God of confusion to where everybody is doing their own thing, but he's the God of peace. And, of course, for Paul, remember, as as a Jewish person, when Paul says the, the Greek term arene, he has in mind the Hebrew concept of what? <laughs> of shalom. And shalom is, is the idea of the way things ought to be. All right, That's shalom, the way things ought to be. And so God is a God of peace. And, and what's reflected in shalom? What's reflected in that peace? Well, order. The opposite of chaos, the opposite of anarchy, is of course order, and so peace should mark our services, peace, and um, that which leads to uh, edification, driven by love. this is the, the the shalom, the wholeness of which Paul is talking about, and that 's what should mark our services. I quoted this text or this quote from Tom Schreiner last week, but it's very, very good. He says, life in the spirit is not chaotic and disorderly. Of course, you wouldn't necessarily gather that from looking around today, right? He says, vibrancy and order are not enemies, but friends. And the gifts can be controlled since God himself is not a God of disorder, chaos, and confusion, but of peace and order right so this is what paul's doing paul's trying to trying to bring some semblance of of order and peace to the corinthian service so that there can be edification of the saints which is why people should gather anyway now that brings us to the difficult text of 33b through 36 and um so, uh in Jason's absence, I'm making my own slides and um so what makes 1 Corinthians 14:33 to 34 so difficult and uh, notice I found some of these on the internet obviously. That it, that should you, should be 1 Timothy 2:12, 1 Corinthians 4:34 and then pointing to a woman with tape over her mouth and then of course next to her is a woman preaching and uh and so what in the world do we make of this text? Don't let women talk in church. All right. So I want to say that there are, there are four things that make this passage very difficult. All right. So go ahead and put the first one up, Nathan. So I, I, I want you to get a sort of a, a feel and an appreciation for why this text is so hard. So first is actually, Where is the, where is the end of the passage? Where is the beginning of the passage? All right. So if you look on the left, New American Standard, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, comma, as in all the churches of the saints, period. And then if you have a New American Standard, you realize verse 34, the women are to keep silent in the churches is the start of a new paragraph. Okay. So this little phrase, As in all the churches of the saints, the question is, does it go with the previous paragraph or does it start a new paragraph? ESV, which by the way, does better than the NAS here. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, period. New paragraph, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, Okay. So that's that's the first issue is where is the paragraph divided here? All right, go ahead and turn to the second one there. So it's interesting, the paragraph break at 33B, so as in all the churches of the saints going with the next part, okay? The the two Greek texts, the, the critical texts, uh, United Bible Society 5 and Nestle Allen 28 has the break, as the ESV does, ESV, NIV, NIV, better than the New American Standard at this point. Then the paragraph break at 34, the Texas Receptus, which is what the King James comes from, Westcott and Hort's text also puts the paragraph break there, and then, of course, the King James following the Texas Receptus, New King James, New American Standard. So so this this does make it a little... Uh, challenging to know exactly uh, where the paragraph uh, ends, where it begins. Now it's not absolutely uh, critical in order to uh, determine the overall meaning, but it is an important part of the, of the passage. The second thing that makes this difficult are what we could identify as textual variants. Now, you guys know textual variants, right? We've talked about them enough over the years. It's where there are differences in the text. What's interesting here is that in this passage, there are no variants, but there is what is called a transposition. That is verses 33 and 34 are not always in the same place. Now I'm going to take a, just a, a, a couple minutes on this because this is important. So understand, so there's no variant reading. Okay, You have, one, the text as it as it reads to us, um, as in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak, but are, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. That passage, all right, There are a number of manuscripts where that passage is right in between 33a and 35, just like it reads for us, all right? In fact, that's where it is in most manuscripts. And no need for me to list all of them for you, but let's just say that uh, there's actually very good agreement, ancient testimony, witness to this reading. Now, there are texts where verses 34, 35 actually follow verse 40. In other words, they get tacked on at the end. So basically what ends up happening is that the text goes like this. God's not a God of confusion, but of peace. Um, and then you've got the women are to keep silent. And if they desire to learn anything, those two verses are then tacked at the end after verse 40. Okay. Do so you follow me Now, um, some Western texts, major Western texts, and, and then in uh, marginal reading in, uh, in one of the Vulgate versions and then two early church fathers. So it's not as if there's no witness to this, but it's far less than the original, okay? So you either have it as it reads or 34, 35 tacked on at the bottom, at the end, all right? Now, some argue that because of this issue of transposition, okay, that is those verses being transposed to the end, that what we should do is we should omit them as original. Okay, following me? So in other words, because they're in two places, someone like Gordon Fee, for instance, argues, this is a later scribal adi- addition, so we should om- omit this. In other words, what he argues and, and, and a few others argue that 34 and 35, Paul never said that. Paul never said the women should be quiet in church. Okay. Some scribe wrote it in later. Okay. Um, it does remind me one time I was preaching at um, a little Baptist church when I was in seminary Um It was a Haley Street Baptist Church in Boring, Oregon, and uh, Haley Street Baptist Church was right down the street from Boring Assembly of God, which is actually pretty funny if you think about it. But anyway, so I would go and I'd preach there to this little church with probably uh, maybe only a few more people than we have here tonight, and we would drive all the way out. Didn't have two quarters to rub together. We'd drive all the way out to Boring and I would preach. And sometimes they'd remember to give me a check for $15 and sometimes they wouldn't. But the thing that drove me crazy, there were two things that drove me crazy. I hope all the people that I preached to in those days are all now in heaven and not listening to this. But two things drove me crazy. One was this gigantic picture of Jesus up behind me while I was preaching. It just absolutely drove me crazy. And the other was, then the deacon board ran the church, all right? You had like three deacon's wives that would sit in the back, knit, and carry on a conversation during the whole service, okay? All right, so I, I so badly wanted to take this text, right? <laughs> but it was it was absolutely, absolutely disruptive, all right, so fee and other people just say, Well, you know, Paul never even said that. you know, a scribe put it in later, so guess how many texts actually omit thirty four and thirty five none, nada a zilch zippo, none in other words there 's no evidence whatsoever that there's any manuscript where 34 and 35 were not in the text. Okay. So to argue that somehow this is not original is not, uh, is not persuasive at all. So then of course the big question becomes what the big question becomes, then how does 34 and 35 get stuck at the end in certain manuscripts? That ends up being the question, right? And, The fact is, is that you never know with any kind of absolute certainty. But one thing that we know is that when the the text is transmitted, they don't have Xerox machines, right? Textual transmission up to the time of Gutenberg is always by hand. It is manual, literally manual with the hand, transmission, And what do we see in literally thousands of manuscripts and fragments? We see marginal notes, marginal readings. So Dan Wallace actually thinks that um, the reason why this gets tacked on at the end in the Western text tradition is because it's very possible that even in Paul's original letter to the Corinthians, he himself is the one that put it in the margin. And over time, what ends up happening is, as that gets copied over and over, it's very likely that that a scribe may not know exactly where it went. So where's the safest place to put it? Well, probably at the end, before the start of a new, they didn't have chapters, but the start of a new unit on the resurrection, all right? Regardless of how it gets to the end, The fact is, is that the best readings are exactly as we have it, all right? So that's a second thing that makes it a little difficult. But in my estimation, it's this third problem that is the most difficult, okay? So if you go ahead and put on the next slide, Nathan. To me, this is what makes the text more difficult than anything else. So notice the reading on the left, that's the text as we have it. All right, I should have highlighted in red, but just notice verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches. Next line, for they're not permitted to speak, should be in submission. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husband at home. It's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, look at what Paul had said in 1 Corinthians 11. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered covered, dishonors his head. But every uh, ESV says every wife could be just woman. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Then down in verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So what seems to be assumed in 1 Corinthians 11? Women prayed in the assembly, and also prophesied, okay. Which, by anybody's definition, requires talking in church. Okay? So to me, this is this is one of the most difficult parts of First Corinthians fourteen. What exactly is Paul talking about, right? So <clears throat> here's. Um, some people have tried to argue, for instance, that what Paul's talking about is what's happening in homes, uh, not what's happening in the assembly, okay? So you have Christians that are gathering in homes and women pray and prophesy in those meetings. Well, you you know, the fundamental problem with that is that the early church met in homes. It, It would probably be almost impossible to distinguish between a home meeting and what would constitute assembling together as a church. Okay? So that probably doesn't um, uh, fly. Um, Others have suggested that what Paul has in mind here in, in 1 Corinthians 11 has nothing to do with the assembly of the body. And that seems like a stretch to me too. And the reason is, is because starting in chapter 10, Paul has done what? Paul has talked about what happens when the church gathers. Chapter 10, he's dealing with the Lord's Supper and fellowship, koinonia. Chapter 11, he deals with men and women's roles. Very, I think apparently in the church regarding head coverings, authority, submission, and that stuff. And then he goes right back to the Lord's Supper again. And then he goes to gifts, 12, 13, 14. So I think to try to make... 11, 2 to 16, something other than what happens in church is really a very, very difficult stretch. And so uh, remember, we haven't defined prophecy yet, but just, just notice in 11, Paul assumes women praying and prophesying. In 14, he requires their silence. Now, some who don't have as high of a view of the Bible as we do would just say, yeah, Paul's, Paul actually contradicted himself, okay? Um, what he says in 11, he says for whatever reason, but then he turns around and says, women should actually be quiet after all. And of course, that's not, that's not an option for us, all right? So so let, let that um, tension between those two passages kind of sink in because that's important. Here, here's, here's what you can't do. You can't ignore one for the sake of the other. Okay. In other words, you can't ignore chapter 14 because you think women should preach and you're going to prove it from chapter 11. And you can't say you can't ignore chapter 11 because you don't think women should talk in church right you have to deal with both texts and that's always the responsibility of actually handling the bible in a way that 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 honors what god has given to us we all have our biases we all have our perspectives as we come but what what i'm saying is you have to deal with both texts in a way that brings them together you can't just choose one or the other the next and the final Uh, difficulty and this is this is not overwhelmingly difficult uh, but next text there Nathan oh it is okay oh yeah that's right I didn't make a slide for this one there's one more thing that makes it a little difficult Paul throws this line in just as the law says you see it right there just as the law says well, um, you see any Old Testament cross-references? Where does the law say that women should be silent in the church? <laughs> right? So that's, we'll get to that. But that is, that is another challenge. That is another difficulty. All right? Now, let me just tell you quickly before we jump into this. I think that there are two clues in the context that help us, and I'm just going to point them out to you, and then we'll 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 revisit these verse twenty nine let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment so what's happening what's what's Paul instructing the corinthian assembly to do that when a prophet prophesies either as we mentioned last week or week before. It's the other prophets or the body as a whole that actually pass judgment. They weigh what's been prophesied, what's been preached. Okay, right. So, in other words, the the guy doesn't just stand up and say, "I'm the prophet of God. What I say goes." The other prophets, at least, weigh in, test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Uh, don't despise prophesying, but hold uh, test all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Right. So, there's an evaluation, a judgment process that goes on in in the course of prophesying, all right? There's also another clue that we'll circle back around, verse 35. Very interesting. If they, that is the women, desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper or disgraceful for a woman to speak in church, okay? So, verse 35 ends up being in, so, in a sense, sort of a contextual clue for us. All right. So first of all, um, let's get to 33B. So I argue that the paragraph break ought to be where, where we said it is, not following the New American Standard, but the ESV. And what Paul's doing, therefore, is he's laying down a universal principle that's to be observed in all the churches, by the way, the reason that I think this is not just because that's convenient for me as a, as a complimentarian, but it is, um, Paul uses this phrase um, in 417, 717, and 1117, that is uh, the idea of, uh, as in all the churches, okay? He uses that phrase three other times in, in Corinthians, and In each one of these instances, Paul's giving specific instruction. This is what I teach in all the churches, right? This is what you're to follow as in all the churches. So so if the paragraph break is as the New American Standard has it, there's no instruction attached to as in all the churches. It's God is a God of peace, not of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, Okay. So in other words, this would make that phrase an anomaly in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And so contextually, as in all the churches, goes more naturally with instruction than with a mere observation that God is a God of, uh, uh, not of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches. All right. So I think the paragraph break is right, as the NAS has it, Second, it says that women in the churches are to be silent for they're not permitted to speak. Now, you do understand, you have to understand the implications of taking certain positions. If you took this to be an absolute command, okay, an absolute command, it would actually preclude a number of things that women do regularly in church. Name one. Singing. If you're to be silent, and this is an absolute command in that sense, then guess what you can't do? You can't sing. Guess what else you can't do? You can't fellowship with anybody, right? So so you got to be really careful the way that you see this this command, if you, uh, by the way, th- this is going to shock some people. Not all of God's commands are absolute commands, okay. they are conditioned. Okay, um, there are absolute commands, okay, don't murder, okay, but even that has qualifications to it, right. If I kill somebody in self-defense, have I broken the command? And the answer is no, because there are certain qualifications to the command. So you can't see this in an absolute way. Otherwise, women would be precluded from singing, from praying, from uh, from even fellowshipping. And so, whatever Paul means, right? Really helpful is the next phrase: "But let them be in submission." So here ends up being really sort of an important piece of the puzzle. Whatever whatever the Corinthian women were doing verbally, it was also a demonstration of lack of submission. In other words, Paul ties directly the exhortation for them to be silent with them to be in submission. All right. Now, Paul has already dealt with this, by the way, in the very chapter where he talks about women praying and prophesying, back in chapter 11. So notice in in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman And God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, who of course is Christ. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, which would be her husband, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also cut her hair off. That may be hyperbole. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover; have his head covered, since he's the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. And so you know the, the rest of the passage. And so Paul, what does Paul do in 1 Corinthians 11? He actually establishes the idea of what we would call male headship. He establishes male headship in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and the wife, since she is not the head, okay, okay, the husband is the head, the wife is to be in submission. By the way, this is not um, uh, widely accepted, you understand, but this is straightforward Bible. The husband is the head, the wife is in submission. And so back in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says a woman is to be silent, not permitted to speak, but she's to be in submission, right? So whatever silent, not speak is, it is in sync with, it harmonizes with the idea of her being in submission. And then Paul says, just as the law says, now it's this that's, that is uh, interesting to me because um, some commentators think that what Paul's talking about is uh, was like Roman law. Okay. Um. I don't know. I find it very hard to read Paul and think that when he says for the for the law says that what he's talking about is Roman law. Okay. Um. Other people point to maybe um, uh, Genesis 3.16, her desire will be for her husband, but he will rule over her, okay? Um, Probably not um, the whole picture. Uh, Some people think that this is um, a Corinthian slogan like we've had before, but actually as a Corinthian slogan, it makes no sense here whatsoever, because the Corinthians are obviously doing the opposite, right? They're not in compliance with whatever law Paul's talking about. So it's hard to find uh, uh, any warrant for this to be a Corinthian slogan. So I think that, um, so how might we figure out what Paul's talking about? For as the law says, One, you could look at parallel passages and see if there's anything in those parallel passages that may have reference that you could identify as what the law says. Okay? Now for Paul, what the law says is going to be what? Probably just what the Old Testament says, right? Right? Not just specifically the Pentateuch, but the Old Testament. He's already said that the law, uh, and then quotes Isaiah 28 earlier in this chapter. So are there parallel passages? And the answer is there's two. The first is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So just flip back there for a quick second. Verse 8, Paul says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Is that an Old Testament reference? Absolutely. It is actually a reference to Genesis chapter 2. All right? So Paul roots headship. In creation, okay? By the way, this is, this is actually a very important argument to remember when you're talking to somebody that is um, what's sometimes called an evangelical feminist or an egalitarian, uh, the idea that, that there are no gender distinctions, gender role distinctions, um, because a lot of times what they say is that reflects Paul's culture, And the fact is, is that Paul never roots his argument on the distinctives between men and women in culture. He roots those distinctions in creation. So creation uh, antedates culture. What culture were Adam and Eve? Well, they were, let's just say the, 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 the purest culture. Okay, um, so Paul roots his argument in 1 Corinthians 11 in creation, but there's another parallel passage. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. People do not like this passage, but guess what? <laughs> You don't get to say so. 1 Timothy 2.11. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Parallel idea to 1 Corinthians 14? Yes. But you, you see it both with silence, okay? Quietly receive and submission. Verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Why? For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So where does Paul root the argument that women are not to teach or exercise authority over man? And the answer is in creation. Adam's created first, then Eve. So there's a priority in creation. And it's not just simply the chronology of creation. Okay. Remember reading, um, um, I think her name was Ida Spencer Bacon, um, Redeeming the Curse, or something like that. It's basically evangelical feminist book. And, and uh, she says, Well, if, if Adam's headship over Eve was because he was created before she was, the animals should be over Adam because they were created before he was. Well, Paul's point is not is not simply chronology. It's priority. God creates Adam and he creates Adam in a unique position and that is as, as head of the human race. Right? And so Paul roots the idea of women not exercising authority over men or um, teaching men, which is an authoritative function. He roots that in Adam's priority over Eve, Adam as, as it were, the head of the human race. And then he roots it in the fall. And, and I have to admit, this is a peculiar argument, but it's Paul's argument. And that is, it was an Adam that was deceived, but it was the woman that was, and literally Paul uses the idea of super deceived. Okay. Now you could make a case. Well, uh, you know, you could make a case for Adam's um, stupidity, okay? But Paul roots the idea of not teaching in the idea of easily deceived. Okay, now, in light of First Corinthians 11, rooted in creation, creation order, and First Timothy 2, creation order and the fall, When Paul says, as the law says, is it not very plausible to say that what Paul's doing is he's giving a summary of what's reflected in the teaching of the Old Testament? So I think I put this quote in your notes. This is from Tom Schreiner. He says, the best solution to what is uh, the law there. Given the parallel text in First Timothy two eleven to fourteen and First Corinthians eleven three to ten, is that Paul refers to the creation narrative in Genesis two? The leaders in the congregation should be men, since one man was created first. Two, woman was created as man's helper. Three, the instructions about not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were given to the man. Four, the na- the man named the woman. Five, the serpent subverted male leadership by approaching Eve. Ever think of that? Six, Adam was more responsible for the sin than Eve since God approached him first, even though Eve sinned first. By the way, Paul doesn't say through Eve, everybody died, but he says through Adam, everybody died, all right? So I think that that actually is, Um, really sort of the best explanation that we have when Paul says, as the law says, all right? So then in verse 35, Paul says, let them ask at home, not at church, okay? So here's here's the picture. Now here's the significant clue, all right? The women, if the women want to learn, that is, if the women want to understand, what are they supposed to do? Supposed to go and ask their husband at home. Does this perhaps give us an insight into the way that the services could have been disrupted? So I think 35 is very important. They should ask their own husbands at home. And then here's here's sort of the clincher for me contextually, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, understand that at that point, when Paul says it's shameful for a woman to speak in church, that's conditioned by the context. And the context is, if they have questions, they should wait until they get home. And ask their husbands at home. Why? Because it's shameful. It's not shameful for a woman to sing in church. It's not shameful for a woman to fellowship in church. It's not shameful for a woman to pray in church. But it most definitely is shameful for a woman to disrupt church for the sake of asking questions. Or let's say even challenging a prophecy. Right? Remember, people judge prophecies. So, this is the way my imagination would, would run. So you've got, um, let's see, we have so few people that we just have just a scarcity for, of, of examples. So I'm gonna use the rices. I'd probably use the rices if the room was full, okay? So let's say, let's say Vic was a prophet, okay? And Vic gets up and he starts prophesying. And Bertie's sitting there (laughs) and she's like, no, Vic, (laughs) that's not right. (laughs) No, what are you talking about? What do you mean, right? You could imagine, I mean, even how disruptive it would be, not just for a woman disrupting the service for the sake of asking a question or challenging something, but could you imagine maybe even a wife challenging her husband? The the, 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 the most I have to deal with is Ariel just putting her head down and shaking her head. That's about all I have to deal with. And so I think that that ends up being uh, very helpful in the overall context in the verse thirty six pretty interesting uh, basically I, I paraphrase it like this do you do you think you 're special All right because in thirty six Paul asks this question he says, or was it from you that the Word of God went forth, or has it come to you only so basically, I think that the reason Paul says this at the end of this is because the Corinthians may well have justified their practices by just sort of claiming sort of a a spiritual superiority. It is very, very plausible that um, you had this chaotic situation in Corinth. You had um, women who were Going back to chapter 7, arguing for, let's say, angelic marriages. (laughs) I don't mean by that like seraphic or, uh, you know, like the cherubim, but angelic in the sense of we're like the angels. uh, Claiming to have the gift of tongues, which was maybe even the language of angels. You could imagine some of the leading women being more prominent, more disruptive, right? And so here you had this chaotic church and Paul basically uh, pulls them up short. And Paul says, listen, you're not above the decorum and the order that marks all the churches. You being out of step, with everybody else doesn't mean that the word of God only came to you or that you alone actually are the ones that have it. In a sense, you being out of step with everybody else is, is not acceptable. You're not the source of the word of God, which by the way, just kind of reminds us, you don't, you don't have the right just to quote do church any way you want you don 't get to make it up as you go okay? you know, one of the one of the terrible banes of of social media is people put up all kinds of just awful videos of terrible churches right and sometimes sometimes it's sort of um, illuminating to see what 's out there but um Somebody put up one the other day of what the sermon was, was a husband and wife interviewing each other, right? Okay. Okay. Well, guess what? Uh, you don't, I think Paul would say, what are you doing? What, you, you think that you alone have the corner on the word of God and, 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 and what God says about how to do church? This is not will worship. You don't get to just do what you want to do, however you want to do it. The word of God didn't start with you. The word of God doesn't end with you. You're subject to it like everybody else, right? And I think that that's Paul's point. And uh, and so Schreiner again, he says, not only would such a response amount to a claim of original authority, it would also reflect arrogance and pride, which of course we know the Corinthians were guilty of. Do the Corinthians think they can invent their own rules that contrast with what is practiced in other churches? All right, so let me kind of bring this together so that I can give you a, a coherent, cohesive explanation of what I think. So number one, it could be that women were involved in judging prophecies, maybe even their own husband's prophecies. And it could be that maybe women were even involved in superseding prophecies in other words maybe it was some of the women that were standing up saying you need to sit down it's my turn I have a fresh word from the Lord I think that's a very real possibility in the Corinthian context but probably more convincing to me is number two and that is it seems that the women were disruptive in the service challenging the men or the teaching, or or the prophecies, interrupting the church meetings, being very vocal about it. And Paul says that's shameful. Absolutely shameful. So I take Paul's admonition that women should be silent in the churches as a prohibition that does not extend to singing, or praying, or fellowshipping, but it comes to uh, but when it comes to let's say authoritative speech or speech which challenges male authority, Paul wants women to be silent. So that would that would exclude a woman from being able to authoritatively teach. That would exclude a woman from being able to authoritatively judge a prophecy. That would exclude a woman from being able to uh, disrupt uh, a service, uh, challenging what was being taught or asking questions. Number four, women should conduct themselves in church in a way that is befitting to, uh, to submissive conduct showing honor to their husbands and to the teaching of the word of God. So uh, that ends up, that ends up being um, such an important part of this picture is that what Paul expects is Paul expects a certain, Decorum with men and women in the assembly. And, and, and there's a sense in which are women vital in the church? And the answer is, of course, they are. And are women gifted to serve in the church? And the answer is, of course, they are. But are men and women different and given different roles in the church and in the home? And the answer is, of course, they are. And Paul actually is, is pretty firm when it looks like those standards of gender- Gender role distinctions are being violated. And so this conduct of women in the church should be a reflection of the creation order. By the way, it should also be a reflection of Christ in the church. Which, of course, in a sense, the creation order is a reflection of Christ in the church but women should conduct themselves in a way in which the authority and submission structures are, uh, are honored both at home and in the church. Those authority submission structures are for the good of the church, not to squash women. The, the authority and submission structure is necessary for the peace and the order of the church and By the way, the same thing goes with the home right? and for for a culture that seems so incredibly. Uh, sensitized to hearing the words authority submission and think that what we're talking about is superiority and inferiority. I would remind you that the second person of the Godhead, the son of God actually willingly became subordinate to his father, submitted to his father. And you have an authority structure between the father and the son. Guess what? The father's always the sender. The son is always the sent one. The, fa- the son always says, I've come to do your will. The father never says, son, I came to do your will. Okay. So for people that, that have an incredible hang up over the issue of authority and submission, you've got to realize that there is a, there is a beautiful picture of authority and submission with the father and the son. And there's nothing demeaning about being in submission. We are all in submission in one way or another, and God's the one that gets to establish those structures. And so, I would see the admonition for women to be silent in churches, to learn at home, to be in submission, to be in 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 uh, in a context of them disrupting the service, challenging the service, uh, uh, judging prophecies and things of that nature. And and in a real sense, Paul says, when you're doing that, you're you're exercising an authority that you don't have, okay? All right, well, I don't really have time, I don't think, to do 37 to 40, so uh, we'll pick that up. Next week is sort of a recap anyway, and, um, and so then we'll get to uh, the big questions that everybody's thinking about. What are tongues? What's prophecy? Do they still continue today? Any questions before, uh, before I pray? I feel safe asking, are there any questions with a group this small, and especially the absence of particular people that aren't present with us? All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, Father, we pray that that in a culture where uh, where your word is is mocked, ridiculed, and marginalized when it comes to men and women, we pray, Father, that you would give us just the courage to be faithful and to hold fast to what your word says. And we pray, Father, that you would indeed Uh, Bless us for it. Thank you for your word. We pray, Father, even tonight that you would encourage our hearts with it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at GraceNevada.com. That's GraceNevada.com.